Welcome to another episode of Dating Skills Podcast. This is your host, Angel Donovan, and today we're talking about intelligence. Does intelligence make you more attractive or less attractive? Does it influence your relationship success, your dating success? We're going to find out more about this today, where the research is at. Um, but it's a funny topic because if you talk to dating coaches, a lot of them will talk about like naturals, like guys who are naturally good with women. And most of these guys tend to be not the typical smart guy. They're not the typical guy who's like doing studies and PhDs and like really furthering his academic uh, education, doesn't take the most cerebral jobs out there. You know, often you talk about the football jockey and the guy who's more interested in sports, not, not so interested in academic subjects and so on and so on and so forth. So that's the stereotype coming from a lot of the dating coach world. And then you have the stereotype coming from what I'd say is a lot of the students is that they feel like they're not smart enough. This is one of the qualities that they think is holding them back, right? Also, there's the stereotype in society, which is a bit like the super smart geek. If you look some of the, like the comedies and the talk shows, you'll often see that the guy who's not getting the results with women in those shows. I mean, if you think about two and a half men, right? Alan in that show is supposedly more intelligent, more thoughtful and so on than Charlie, but gets nowhere with women. And if you look at so many other shows, you know, it's, it's similar. The geek doesn't tend to do so well with women. The guy who's a bit nerdy, he's really smart, and he's really into more cerebral subjects, academic subjects, whatever. So this is an interesting subject to pull apart and see what the actual reality of it. And especially if we look at the research and go back to that instead of just like talking to people about their opinions and see what that says. So today we have Dr. Glenn Geher. He's a professor and chair of psychology at the State of University of New York. And specifically, he's been very interested in the topic of intelligence and mating. So his book that he's written is Mating Intelligence Unleashed, The Role of the Mind in Sex, Dating and Love. And it looks a lot about what intelligence is and how it influences attraction, relationship outcomes and so on. So Glenn really is the ideal person to talk about this, and it's going to be a great show, really putting apart whether being smart helps or hinders you. And frankly, I feel like this is a topic that we really should have covered before because it's one of those things that guys use as an excuse for not getting out there and making things happen for themselves. So here it is. Glenn is also pretty active. So he is a founding member of the Evolutionary Studies Consortium, which pushes ideas and spreads ideas about evolutionary psychology. We've had other evolutionary psychologists on here before, so you'll understand that. And he blogs at Psychology Today, which of course is a very reputable uh, magazine in the psychology area. So in just a minute, we're going to be talking to Glenn. As usual, to get the links and everything we talk about on the show and made it all easy for you to access and everything, uh, we have that in the show notes, as well as the download of the MP3 and the transcript so that you can find bits um, that you found particularly interesting also more easily. So if you want that, you can go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash DSP76. Now I get a lot of email from you guys. And honestly, I think you'll have an idea about this. I just can't answer it all. There's a crazy volume and there's just far too many questions. So to fix that, I've decided to start up a little project experiment um, in helping to answer some of these more effectively and more efficiently for me so I can get some answers out. So what I've done is I've set up a voicemail. It's a US and international voicemail boxes where you can drop me a message and you can ask a question. And Jackson and I will simply get together every Monday and we'll look at my voicemail and we'll answer those questions and we'll 
put them on the podcast for you to hear the answers to absolutely anything that you're struggling with. So to get the voicemail number, and this is going to be an ongoing thing, to get the voicemail number, you can go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash newsletter. You sign up for the newsletter and the first newsletter edition has the voicemail, which you can use to your heart's desire whenever you feel like it. Just give it a call, drop your question in. We'll get those answered on Mondays. Now let's get into this interview and see exactly what intelligence means for your dating skills. I'm Angel Donovan. And this is the Dating Skills Podcast. This is a 14-year ongoing mission to discover the truth about what works in dating, sex, and relationships. To become a better man. Join me as I leave no stone unturned. Chase down every expert, role model, and mentor with insights to get us to that goal as fast as possible. This show is about bringing you the best of that information so that you can take it in and change your life for the better, step-by-step, episode-by-episode. Glenn, so great to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you, Angel. Glad to be here. Could you, we've had quite a few scientists on the show now, including uh, Jeffrey Miller, of course, which is a little bit related to your area. So could you give us a bit of perspective on what your area of science is and your perspective, and also in comparison with Jeffrey Miller, which is you know kind of connected with your area? Sure. I am a research psychologist um, with a focus on social psychology. My PhD is in social psychology, meaning I study, scientifically study the nature of social behaviors. And my particular content area of interest has largely focused on human relationships or intimate relationships or mating. Um, And I've taken a strong interest in evolutionary psychology, which seeks to examine uh, behavioral patterns, such as social behavioral patterns, um, from an evolutionary perspective. So, in short, I look at um, factors of human relationships and and issues of mating, trying to understand how evolution can help us understand why we do the things we do in relationships. Great. So, to be clear, is this always from a nature and not a nurture? perspective so it's embedded in us and it's not really something we can change i think that's an excellent question um i think that if if there was if it were true that there was nothing people could change then there'd be no use for scientific psychology um so i think there's a uh, common misconception regarding the evolutionary perspective in psychology which is the idea that the evolutionary perspective is the same as genes cause everything which is actually not not it at all. The basic idea of evolutionary psychology is that human behavioral patterns make most sense when we apply evolution. Now, does evolution select for behavioral patterns that are flexible based on environmental conditions? Absolutely. Um, So from an evolutionary perspective, behavioral flexibility as a function of environment is probably as much the core idea as anything else. Um, If you have an organism um, that doesn't change its behavior as a function of the ecology or the environment, then if you have a bird um, that when it gets very cold out and the food is scarce, doesn't go south, that bird's going to die a Darwinian death. It's not going to survive and reproduce. And eventually you have species of birds that end up going south in the winter because it's adaptive for them. But what you see is that they're behaviors are 
fully dependent on environmental conditions, that the, the rules, the behavioral rules that evolve in them are not just do X. It's do X, but when Z happens, do Y. Um, we call this conditional strategism or conditional behavioral strategies. And in humans, we have evolved a host of behavioral patterns that clearly and without question are conditional based on environmental context that are relevant from an evolutionary perspective. Great. Thank you. That's a very in-depth point. And I'm just wondering if this maps a little bit to the recent changes in biology where we started off with this nature defines us with genes and and now we have epigenetics which depends on the environment so they've layered epigenetics and they found these changes in biology which adapt to the environment and situations and we can even influence ourselves by like going to the gym for 10 years or or our diets and things so is it kind of similar in like we've seen that biology no longer has this kind of you are defined the way you are born perspective anywhere is it similar in evolutionary psychology from kind of that yeah i think it's a it's a really interesting perspective um and this is the kind of stuff that we love to teach about to our students and talk about in in detail you know when you look at what causes behavior you can take there's different um straw man approaches you can take so you might say well genes make your behavior and only genes matter and i think that might be like a very restricted and i think highly incorrect approach to a biological conception. But I do think that maybe years ago, that was more, maybe more common. So it's kind of like the genes cause everything perspective. Then the opposite of that is the environment causes everything perspective. And, you know, instead of, as I see it, instead of academics bickering and trying to defend either of these things, which is obviously not true, there are more and more interactionist perspectives um, that really speak to the fact that any behavior is a result of one's inclinations, which might we might think of as genetically predisposed inclinations, interacting with their current environmental situation, interacting with their history of environment across their lifetime, interacting with the environmental conditions that their ancestors experienced generations ago. Um, and, and so I think that what we call interactionism has become much a much more dominant form of understanding human behavior has two benefits seeing behavior this way. One is that it, I, at least as I see it, it reduces bickering. You know, it reduces scholars pointing each other as uh, having this dogmatic point of view that's, you know, either X or Y. And it's also more accurate. All the research on gene environment interaction shows, you know, the answer is absolutely. That's absolutely how human behavior comes about. Great, great, great. Thank you. So today's topic is intelligence, and that's where you've also uh, done a, quite a bit of focus. Um, so I would like to start off with the big question. Does intelligence play a role in attractiveness and mating outcomes, our results, our success with dating, relationships, and sex? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. There's a couple of books that I published on this topic and some other publications as well. But the, the recent book that I published with Scott Perry Kaufman called Made Intelligence Unleashed gets very much into the idea of what is intelligence and how does intelligence relate to human mating behaviors. Um, and what got me particularly interested in this question is um, 
looking at the issue of intelligence, it's a very big area of psychology. It gets entire chapters dedicated to it in uh, general psychology textbooks, for instance. But then when you look at evolutionary psychology, which is another juggernaut or giant area within psychology, evolutionary psych focuses so much on behavioral patterns that ultimately facilitate reproductive success, um, mating behaviors among them. And we looked at the literature and we said, you know, no one really has connected intelligence and evolutionary psychology very effectively. It makes sense if intelligence is a really basic aspect of what it means to be human then intelligence should relate very importantly to the domain of mating, which is the behavioral domain that ultimately directly leads to reproductive success. Um, So with this idea in mind, we developed this idea of mating intelligence. And there's two basic ways that we thought about it. Um, One, I think, is more consistent with what Jeffrey Miller has has worked on and has um, studied extensively, which is the mating relevant outcomes of general intelligence. Um, so in the intelligence literature, there's many schools of thought, and there's a lot of disagreement on a lot of things. But one of the main schools of thought in, in the intelligence literature is that there's a general kind of intelligence that sort of overlays all other forms of intelligence. We could think of this as um, cognitive intelligence or intellectual aptitudes and a whole host of them, verbal skills, mathematical skills, um, geometrical skills, and so forth. And one thing that I know Jeffrey Miller is pretty famous for documenting is that that general kind of intelligence, to the extent that we can measure it, seems to be related to different markers of success in the meeting domain. Um, Creative intelligence, creative abilities, humor abilities, things that are called um, G-loaded, strongly related to general intelligence seem to be predictive of various kinds of mating outcomes. So there's a study that just came out by Gordon Gallup, uh, Nicole Wedberg, and some other researchers from University of Albany. And what they found was that in relationships, men who score higher on humor, which is considered a proxy for intelligence quite often, um, those women were more likely to report having orgasms um, as one way that intelligence might relate to the outcomes that are mating relevant. So did you say women were more likely to have orgasms with men with higher humor? Or Yes. Okay. Yes. This just came out in evolutionary psychology about a week ago, and that that is the finding. And that's very consistent with the kind of thing that uh, that Miller has documented about this relationship between markers of general intelligence and mating relevant outcomes. The, the other side of it, though, and when you look at our concept of mating intelligence, the other side of it is there's a whole bunch of um, cognitive processes that go on that are highly related to mating directly. So when you think about sort of the cognitive psychology of mating, there's tons of decisions that you have to make to do it effectively. So like you need to size yourself up in a mating market, right? People, um, there's all kinds of evidence that people have some implicit understanding of their own mate value, for instance. And if you miscalibrate that, that could go awry. If you sort of underrate or undervalue yourself in the mating domain, that might not work out well for you in terms of who you end up with. If you overvalue yourself, there's um, problems too, because you, you might have a hard time finding a mate. So that's one kind of mating specific cognitive ability 
that we also think of as mating intelligence. Um, so assessing your own mate value, assessing the mate value of potential partners, making assessments about infidelity. Um, you know, we all know that infidelity is something that exists in relationships um, at a higher rate than people would like. So being able to assess whether that's happening and to sort of make appropriate decisions on that, um, decisions that are relevant to mating later in relationships. How do you keep a, a mate happy after all a certain amount of number of years, for instance? Um, these are all the kinds of cognitive abilities that separate from general intelligence, we think of as also being part of human mating intelligence. What is uh, one of the things I saw that comes up is intrasexual selection. Sure. Intra is just a prefix that means within. So intrasexual means within a particular sex. So when we hear the phrase intrasexual selection, which is a phrase from Darwin himself, he was talking about how members of the same sex compete with each other for a member of the opposite sex. So with, with deer, for instance, um, you'll see two bucks. When bucks get their, their antlers, they go at it, they ram each other. One of them will back down, and the one that wins essentially gets access to females. So we can think of that as intersexual selection, or sometimes we'll call it in, intersexual competition. Um, does that happen in, in humans? And people who study that have shown it, it certainly does. And that seems to be effectively navigating intersexual selection or intersexual competition is a very important part of human dating intelligence. Um, knowing if the way that we do it in, in humans, well, first off, males in a lot of ways, young males in particular, are not that different from deer um, or for, from bucks in that you're much more likely to see physical altercations between males at sort of the, the young adult mating relevant stage, you're more likely to see injuries in young males that seem to be related to mating relevant situations. So intersexual competition in males is not always physical, but sometimes takes a physical form. And given that fact, you know, guys have to navigate that and figure out, you know, figure out how to avoid certain situations and figure out how to, how to sort of get through that. Yeah. And uh, so the intelligence part comes in where you're assessing if someone's competing with you for the girl you're interested in. Sure, sure. Or basically looking for these gray areas and seeing what's going on around you socially. Uh, like, you know, who's interested in who? Are you interested in the same person? Is, is that guy a threat to your interest in this girl and these kind of dynamics? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And those are the kind of cognitive skills that I think are really crucial and realize that there's competition going on for someone to have a sense of, okay, this is all about, we both want the same, the same woman. How, how can I figure this out in a way that's going to be beneficial for me without things going very sour? Those are exactly the kind of, the kind of skills that make up mating intelligence for young guys. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things we stress a lot here on the podcast and on our site um, and what we do is that, you know, we want to get to as close to reality as possible which is why it's great like having guys like you who've done so much research and, and studying on the area, trying to get close to reality and what the facts are actually of the situation. We find a lot of guys don't have a good image of reality. They're looking at situations differently than what we've learned over time is actually the, the real situation. Um, so it's, it's, it's in a way this a lack of intelligence in these situations, which we then like over time, like teach them about it and they start to see it and so on through experience and so on. 
So I'm just wondering how you would look at that. Why is it that they start off with these biases? Like, for instance, that they don't see things like, like we were just talking about competition between males. They don't see a scenario where some of their friends have actually been competing with them or where a girl wasn't interested in them and they thought they were, she was, or often, like, because they, they kind of lack confidence a lot when, when they're, like, working on their dating area, they actually will think, like, women aren't interested in them when they are interested in them. So I'm just wondering where these where you think these biases come from um, and what role intelligence might play in this, or is it is it something that's it's being learned, or, you know, where does that come from? Yeah, no, there's there's definitely uh, mating relevant biases um, that men and women show, and they seem to be different uh, between between the genders. So, for instance, females are uh, much more likely than males to to think that a guy to think that a potential partner is only interested in short term relationships, and that's a very common kind of perception on the part of females. In fact. It seems to make things hard for guys that really are long-term mating strategists. So whether a guy really is interested in something long-term or not, there's a very strong tendency for females to be skeptical and think, well, you know, you might say that, you might show that, but I don't really, I don't really know yet that you're um, long-term material. I don't really know yet that you're going to be faithful and solid and all that. Um, And this is what courtship is all about. Um, the evolutionary reason for this is because females stuck with a partner who deserts, who doesn't stick around, who doesn't help out with childcare, with provisioning, um, providing resources, that, that female is going to have a difficult time from an evolutionary perspective raising offspring effectively. Whereas a female who does a good job of finding a guy who's a great provider, who's very faithful, um, who's great with kids, that woman's offspring are more likely to do to do better. So when you look at what courtship is, it's sort of is the result, I think, of that dynamic regarding um, the nature of female choice. So yeah. So from your perspective, that's a good bias, although it doesn't reflect reality. It's a helpful bias for her. Yeah. Because it's a high risk situation in terms of future burden. Yeah. It's an adaptive bias. I mean, that's the phrase that evolutionary social psychologists use is that's an adaptive bias. It might be totally inaccurate, right? So there might be a woman who's, yeah. who's with a guy and this guy might just, for whatever reason, be the most faithful guy out there. And she might press him for six to 12 months on, you know, demonstrate to me that you have money, that you are willing to um, spend money on things that, that show you care about me, about potential future offspring. Um, demonstrate that you'll give me your time. Um, so all the things that we see in courtship, you know, of course I don't want to play golf on Saturday with the guys. What are you, what are you kidding me? I'm, you know, I'm going to be with you. Um, and all the things that, that women do during courtship is sort of, are you willing to make decisions regarding your time? Are you willing to make decisions regarding emotional investment? Um, are you willing to make decisions regarding financial investments? That's what courtship is. And it's, it's pressing, it's to some extent pressing a guy to see, are you showing the signs that suggest that you're going to be good for a long-term mate? So the, the cost, if a woman makes a bad decision in choosing a long-term mate, the evolutionary costs are dramatic. And, and because of that, even if she's wrong, even if there's no need for this bias with this particular guy, it's such an adaptive bias that in this case... I think what I'd say is that the 
evolutionary benefits of having that bias override issues of trying to determine accuracy. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to throw some ideas out and you can tell me if I'm completely shooting in the wrong direction. But like I was thinking of as you were you were talking about this, there's this aspect of uncertainty, right? So in terms of our intelligence, we're trying to use it to anticipate people's what they really want and what the, what they're going for. So uh, the women in terms of the guy's interest in a, a longer term uh, relationship. And I think it, it's her, the uncertainty that means that the bias is useful to her. If there was more certainty, if she was better, it, like we could say if she was more intelligent <laughs> in terms of being able to assess uh, the, the guy's interest, you know, if she was very accurately be able to predict um, whether he, he really is committed and, you know, his, his, his real uh, interests, then there would be less of this bias. She would, she would focus on reality because that would give her the best outcome. And I'm wondering if there's any studies out there showing that um, more intelligent women tend to have less bias, less of these kind of negative biases, you know, kind of the commitment bias, the anti-commitment bias, if you like. Um, because like one, one tendency, like one stereotype we have is that we say that, and I think in the research has kind of supported that more intelligent women tend to be more sexual and you tend to have more hypersexuals that are hypersexual women, which are more intelligent. And I'm just wondering, it's because these women actually have more social intuition, more accuracy, so they're more free to act as they want um, and to not have this kind of uh, more fearful bias as to men's interests. Well, I got to tell you, I don't know specific research on that, but the way you've articulated that hypothesis is intriguing to me. And it sounds to me like that would be a great stuff. <laughs> and it, it, it wouldn't be difficult to do, right? To just Already? measure women's intelligence and then measure. There's plenty of measures about commitment skepticism. In in uh, in women, and uh, I, that seems to be like a natural a natural study, and I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure how it would pan out, but I think that's a great idea. Excellent, excellent. Well, I hope someone does that study. I'd be interested in the answer to that. I guess you know, I'm just pulling this kind of stuff out of my own experience as well, and you know, kind of what I've seen. Sometimes experience informs new scientific uh, experiments. I guess. <laughs> Another thing I wanted to talk about is there's the types of intelligence uh, we talk about in the popular world. And you see kind of more books out and, you know, people think about more. So we have IQ, intelligence quotient, which is obviously the one that maths and everyone's kind of focused on in education um, as we're growing up and stuff. We tend to know better. And then recently there's been more a focus on social intelligence, emotional intelligence. And now you're introducing this mating intelligence topic. Like, how do you see these relating to each other? and playing into the mating intelligence role, if at all? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question. Um, the concept of intelligence, it's, it's, a, it's a naturally um, lightning rod kind of concept because when people hear the concept of intelligence, they can almost automatically start imagining um, a hierarchy of people with you have a fixed IQ score, so you're kind of here, there's people that are here above you. There's others that are below you. And it has this, um, it has that quality about it that I think is, is kind of a, a turnoff or a threat for people in a lot of ways. And what's been great in the last, I don't know, maybe even 40 years or so has been not only theory about multiple kinds of intelligence is, but additionally, um, strong research suggesting that there's really something to back up this, this theory. And so I'd say my, from my background, um, 
there really are multiple routes to success. And this is true in the mating domain. This is true in pretty much any domain. So one route to success in the mating domain is high cognitive intelligence, right? So um, having strong cognitive intelligence, being known, having a reputation for being very cognitively intelligent, um, you know, that's, that's not going to hurt you in the mating domain. Um, so does that, does that include humor? Where would you put humor? Sure. So is humor the same as cognitive intelligence? I'd say humor is a marker of general intelligence. Um, from my perspective, things like humor, um, social intelligence, emotional intelligence, musical abilities, creative abilities, I think these start being separate from general intelligence. At least this is my, my perspective. So humor might be G-loaded, um, meaning that it's related, like, related to general intelligence. But when you look at the actual statistics, you look at the actual data, someone who's, um, people who that are very high on humor, they're slightly more likely to also score high on general intelligence than others, but it's by no mean the perfect correlation. You know, so I think at least the way that I see it, the way that I interpret the, the literature on this is that there are a whole bunch of factors that seem to be interrelated that we can think of as um, sort of cognitive intelligence. But then we have a whole bunch of other things that act like intelligence, that look like intelligence, that can be measured as an intelligence that are either somewhat related to general intelligence or cognitive intelligence, or maybe even not related to that, but they still are predictive of success in life, in job, in relationships. And, you know, I think that modern, uh, modern psychology, largely with the idea of um, emotional intelligence, you know, was really, I think, the thing that really kick-started this when Jack Mayer and Peter Salovey came up with that about 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago now. I think that really kick-started this idea that there's lots of routes to success and that intelligence isn't isn't just verbal and quantitative intelligence, but there's a whole bunch of other of other kinds out there. Yeah, so it, it's, it seems like we're still trying to, we don't have a map of intelligence. We have where we came from, where it was, it was only cognitive, and we're kind of working through these other types of intelligence. And I guess one day maybe we'll have a complete map of how, how we actually assess that, rather than having the cognitive bias we do today, where a lot of education is based on an IQ test or something similar. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's right. I think that we're the research and social trends are, and education trends are sort of moving away from that general intelligence is everything idea. And I, and I think that's, uh, I see that as a good thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I wanted a couple of st a few stereotypes now in terms of intelligence we have and some observations we've had in the dating market for a while to see how you look at these. So some of the uh, stereotypes I guess we have in society is that really intelligent people aren't as humorous. Um, they don't tend to have those social skills. So I guess we, we're thinking on the geeky, the nerdy people, you know, the, the people who can are really, really, really high off the kind of chart, like cognitive abilities. Uh, we tend to think of them as like stereotype geekies. And we give them these names because, you know, we're, it's, it's just kind of looking, in a way, it's like saying they're not so socially intelligent. Um, in the dating market, what we've seen over time is also like through over a decade of teaching and coaching men, is that the guys who think a lot and who may respond better to like courses and things which are very intellectual and learning those tend to not do so well. 
they can be very good at like studying these things and the complex methods. There's some very complex dating methods out there versus some very simple ones. And often we see that the guys who aren't as cognitive biased, it's kind of like they're not as attracted to the cognitive stuff either. And they're kind of more, more social and they don't think so much about things. They just kind of tend to do them, tend to do much better. So this is kind of stereotype in, in our market where the more intelligent guys don't tend to do so well maybe because they're overthinking. You know, there's, there's a whole bunch of reasons around that. And also when we first started looking at this over 10 years ago, we used to call some people, uh, some guys naturals uh, because they were naturally good with women. And it tends to be like the stereotypical college, uh, like the football jock who isn't, isn't getting great scores in IQ, uh, cognitive, his cognitive tests are like, you know, to be very typical. This is all very stereotypical, of course. And also in, in general, the, the guys who aren't getting the highest grades in school, tend to date the hotter women and, and so on. So these are like a lot of the stereotypes we've been working through in the, in the dating market. Um, and we've actually kind of like actually seen play out a lot in terms of the naturals don't tend to be the most intelligent. And maybe it's a question of where they invest their time. The cognitive types don't tend to invest so much time talking to people and so on. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about all these stereotypes and their validity or... Yeah, no, I, I think it's a great question. I think it's a natural follow-up to what we've been um, talking about regarding different kinds of intelligence. People who uh, study human cognitive processes, there's different words or frame, uh, ways of framing it, but there seems to be two basic kinds of cognitive processes, and they seem to be pretty different from each other um, and kind of unrelated to each other. So I know Scott Barry Kaufman, my co-author for Mating Intelligence Unleashed, done a bunch of stuff on the intelligence of the unconscious or unconscious processing versus conscious kind of processing. Um, you can measure unconscious cognitive skills. There's a whole bunch of ways to measure that. And how people perform on those is not perfectly related to how they perform on traditional cognitive skills, such as math problems or logic problems. One way that people talk about it is cold processing versus hot processing, um, with cold processing being more cognitive, more cerebral, intellectual, and hot processing being more like the natural. Like when you talk about the natural, that's someone who processes information effectively in a social environment, understands emotional cues, kind of gets that kind of stuff. You know, might not, might not have the best SAT score, but mm. like you're saying, like jumps into a social situation and, you know, I got this. I can naturally interact with these other folks. And, and there do seem to be um, two separate brain systems seem to oversee these that are related, but they're not perfectly related. So if we are high in cognitive intelligence, does that mean that we're going to more likely be lower in the other area of intelligence or vice versa? Or is it just kind of like a, a, a pot shoots? Like some people have both. Um, some, some people have more bias on one than the other. And maybe it's like a, a nurture thing. It's like when you're young, if you have a slight strength in the, the emotional social side, you tend to focus more on that because it's easier for you. And it develops or, you know, I don't know what kind of research you've done on this or that exists. Yeah, no, it, it makes it makes a lot of sense. Um, like I said, Scott, my co-author Scott has studied this more extensively. And I know his dissertation, um, dissertation in, in cognitive psychology at Yale that he completed a couple of years ago was an awesome, awesome document um, with great research. And I think what he found, um, and, and you could always talk to Scott and he could correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure what he what he found was that these are kind of what we call in the business orthogonal dimensions or orthogonal processes. 
So it doesn't mean that they're negatively related. It doesn't mean high in one necessitates low in the other, but it, it kind of means like the way that you might have um, put it a second ago was like a like a crapshoot. That if you're high in one, you're just as likely to be high in the other, or medium in the other, or low in the other. Um, and so I think that that would sort of account for why there's some guys that are like half it all. They're super smart and they're so good with people and they're great relationships. And you know what does this guy have? And he might be in sort of that quadrant of being, being high in both both kinds of processes, whereas you could be sort of high in, in the one and very low in the other, intermediate as well. So as we've been saying, like IQ, I mean, the way we've been talking about it, it sounds like the IQ isn't as beneficial. But actually, the, the, I know there's areas where you have seen that it's beneficial, for instance, in self-control, loyalty. So in relationships, does IQ correlate with behaviors that somehow lead to positive outcomes in terms of health relationships satisfaction and, and happiness that's a great question I, I mean my take on the literature is that there tend to be what we would call s- small and positive correlations of that um, there seems to be like when you look at a very large sample on um, people who score higher on intelligence tend to be more likely to report relationship satisfaction but again i'd say that's a relatively small relationship so i'd say there's a, a small tendency for that to be the case, um, but nothing profound. All right, right. So it's it may not be um, such a big deal. Is there anything that you, you see IQ actually correlating with in terms of this whole mating intelligence area that you've seen? It definitely, when you conceptualize IQ a bit broader than just scores on an IQ test. So an IQ is broadened so as to include, in particular, markers of creativity. When we think about creative intelligence, then I think the door gets opened up quite a bit. Um, intelligence tests vary in terms of how much they tap creativity versus not. But separate from IQ tests, if we think about intelligence, general intelligence is including the ability to create, the ability to come up with new ideas, develop new ideas, make connections that other people aren't making, come up with novel solutions to problems. These things are adaptive and these things are attractive. And I think they benefit an individual within a social group, um, which could lead to status increases. They benefit in terms of courtship, because I think creativity is definitely attractive. So I think when general intelligence is sort of amplified or expanded in a way so as to really be reframed in terms of creative intelligence, I, I, I think that it does become something that is very predictive of relationship success. Great, great. I think we have to come back to that point where we don't have a really have a comprehensive map and certainly not like the current scores that most, you know, judgments are made on. And I guess, I mean, I haven't been back to school for a long time, but I guess people in college and stuff still feel kind of like um, assessed by their IQ in terms of the way people look at them in terms of their smartness and, and intellectual capacity. Would you say that's true or do you, you said it was evolving? I don't know what you know about how that's changing. Right. Yeah, I think to some extent, I think to some extent, people take their IQ score, it could be their SAT score, these, these kinds of things, and internalize internalize these things a bit. Uh, it kind of depends on the subculture that they're in. You know, so someone comes from a subculture of testing, where testing is everything, and testing is intensive, and people buy into it. I think the test scores can matter quite a bit. Uh, on the converse, the town I live in, New Paltz, New York, has had a huge pushback against testing. And in fact, a giant percentage of the kids in the school district last year, in collaboration with their parents and a lot of teachers, did not take the state 
um, the state achievement tests, you know, it's part of it. So I think if you're in a culture that sort of downplays or even reacts against testing, then that might have benefits to people sort of not feeling like it's a, a badge that they carry around. Right, right. Yeah, I just feel this is important to address because, you know, in our audience, there's going to be guys who have different SAT scores. And, you know, many of them have maybe if it's a lower SAT score, they've been feeling like they're not smart and that impacts their dating life and, and so on for obvious reasons. But as we're talking, like, there's various different types of intelligence which that doesn't assess and which are super beneficial as we've been talking about. So it's not, it can actually be the inverse in, in many cases. Whereas obviously IQ is not going to hurt you either as we were saying, because it's not, there's not any negative correlation that you've seen either. Right, right. Yeah. But it's certainly mating success can easily follow from someone who's perfectly average on cognitive intelligence. And I think we see that. Yeah. So the only thing I would say is just from experiential coaching people, sometimes the guys who are more intelligent tend to overthink things. Uh, They tend to gravitate towards more complex ways of looking at things, which kind of prevents action it kind of prevents just doing things and you know, just kind of moving forward with it more than in other areas. I'm not, I'm not really sure if that's anything that you've come across at all, but it's just something that I've seen over time. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. So, you know, if you're cognitively oriented kind of person, overthinking things often comes with the, uh, that's part of the territory. So in terms of the differences intelligent in intelligence between men and women, uh, we've spoken a little bit about biases, but in terms of their different intelligence like i know there's interpersonal emotional emotional intelligence and social intelligences there's different biases there in terms of women being better in some areas than others how does that affect the mating game and the dynamics it's an interesting question i I think the uh general findings of gender differences in markers of intelligence it's a very contentious area um but the the best summary that I've seen kind of not studying that directly, but looking from the sidelines is, is what we might think of as generally small effect sizes. Um, so I'd be a little bit wary of making broad implications based on that, that literature. But with that said, I, I will say a very consistent theme in that literature connected with emotional processing is a tendency for women to have stronger skills on that domain and that probably does have implications because if on average guys aren't as good, then they might be, you know, you might be missing things and trying to navigate uh, through a social world with members of the opposite sex. Um, so trying to court a woman when, when it comes to that kind of process and you're just not, she's a, a step ahead, that could make things a little bit difficult. Yeah, we often say in the, in the dating world that women have better intuition about your intentions than you have potentially about her intentions, at least until you've gathered a fair amount of experience. Yeah, well, I think that that could be that could be that playing out. Yeah. So just just to be clear about what you were saying was contentious, you're, you're saying like in terms of uh, women having higher social intelligence and emotional interpersonal intelligence and that you're saying that whole area is like not really resolved yet, because um, I think there's some popular books out there which kind of push that idea. Yeah. Yeah. Again, these are average differences, right? So from a statistical perspective, they're they're average differences. Um, pretty consistent. I will say that when it comes to the emotional processing stuff and social processing stuff, there does, there does tend to be a female superiority effect. Again, there's a reasonably small effect sizes. So, you know, it doesn't mean that you're 
if you're a married guy, it doesn't mean that you're definitely a social idiot compared with your wife. It just means that you might be. Right, right. And in terms of emotional processing, you mean in terms of assessing the other person's emotions? Is it mostly about that? So kind of... Yeah, that, that's largely it. You know, so someone says something and, you know, there's some people that are like, oh, God, I saw that thing with the eyebrows. I, I know what they really meant. And there's some people that are just clueless. Um, they can't read the nonverbals. They... They hear someone say that's fine with a real negative uh, connotation left saying they're like okay that person said that's fine you know and other people look at it and like no they meant that's not fine that was just what they said so yeah i think i think inability you know we can call it emotional processing or interpersonal skills but i think those those do tend to overlap quite a bit that's interesting because guys i think one of the things they they often get caught up with is when they're relating to guys they can talk in a kind of dry way um and sometimes when they respond to a woman like that and she, they feel like she's overreacting to them and it's probably because she's, you know, they're not used to someone looking into their verbals and understanding that. And even though the guys themselves actually do have that underlying meaning, they're not really thinking about it so much because they're used to mostly talking to guys all the time and they're not thinking about the, the more subtle implications of what they were saying and the context of what they were saying and maybe the, the emotional value behind that. And so they're like, why is she overreacting? I mean, this is a very stereotypical thing as well, right? Like there's like thinking that women are making more, but actually it could be like she's actually understanding more of what you're meaning and, and reacting to that. Right. And understanding things that you may be feeling and not expressing overtly. It's interesting. It reminds me of uh, each year there's this group of guys, uh, we call it, we go on something called the man trip and once a year and it's for like maybe two or three nights and it's just the same group of guys guys going back to college and my gosh after that trip everyone reports um gosh i don't know exactly what the word is for it but there's like this adjustment period and you're like oh my god like you, you come home and it takes two or three days before you can like communicate with with your with your spouse again because you're like you're just surrounded by guys and like the communication between all guys for an extended period is it's very different. It's very different. So there really is this adjustment period, which I think speaks to, you know, a very different kind of interpersonal style. What I like about that story is it shows that you can adapt. You know, it's not like you go back home and then your wife doesn't understand you and you don't understand her anymore. It takes you a few days and you get back into it. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. right. So it's, it's a skill versus something that we're, you know, we all know that people can learn more communication skills and stuff, but it's nice to hear that, you know, this is there are direct experiences of this. I don't know if it's like uh, you have any evidence as to interpersonal skills and, and stuff like that, where people have learned to improve their relationships via learning better interpersonal skills or or increasing their social emotional intelligence with some some kind of work on it. There's definitely people that have that have done studies on that. I know my um, one of my advisors in graduate school, Becky Warner, has shown that emotional intelligence is a huge predictor of success in in relationships um, and when the partners are concordant on emotional intelligence, when similar in level, um, that seems to be beneficial. And uh, when one of the partners, when, when both partners are reasonably good at it and one is particularly effective at it, that seems to be a, a recipe for effectiveness as well. And Mark Brackett, who uh, has the Emotional Intelligence uh, Research Institute, I think it's called at Yale, has done a lot of research showing that emotional intelligence can be improved and that educational practices designed to focus on people's ability to process others' emotions and process their own emotions better. Um, that's something that actually can be, can be improved and clearly has beneficial effects for relationships. Right. 
Also, I'm going to jump on a couple of things. You said that getting a better, improving your emotional intelligence, better understanding yourself and the other does improve outcomes. Does it, it tends to improve relationship outcomes? Yeah, there's several studies now that have documented that. Great, great. Yeah, so that means we're, it, it's actually worth working on because we're always pushing the idea that like the closer you get to reality, your map of the world is, is actual reality, the better things are going to get just because what you're doing, you can, your mind knows that if you do this, you're going to get that rather than you're doing this and like oh, something different happens. It's just one follow the, follows the other and you automatically start doing the things that work rather than don't work. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And I think that's part of the fact that we continue to adapt and and in, in many ways develop and improve across the lifetime. Yeah, great, great. So which type of intelligence do you feel is more important or do you feel it's contextual, right? For say, someone in a relationship versus not a relationship, are there areas of intelligence you feel are more important to the outcome? Positive outcomes, healthy outcomes, happiness, satisfaction? Yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely think, I mean, when you look at markers of success in relationships, um, having an intelligent partner or a pair of intelligent partners, that's a very small part of the story. Um, having people that can read each other well and deal effectively interpersonally, I think that's more important. And there's research, there's new research that's that's come out or a new um, new summary by John Gottman, uh, the benefits of of kindness in relationships. But the, you know, there's research going back years showing that kindness in relationships and, and patience in a relationship hugely predicted of success. Um, you know, so these things seem so so simple when we think about advancing ourselves in all other kinds of areas, but patience and kindness end up mattering more in long-term relationship success than intellectual skills or status or um, income or a lot of these kinds of things. So I think that definitely relates more to um, emotional intelligence or making, making people feel good about themselves. Yeah, yeah. I study things that I don't really know where they connect with academia sometimes, but emotional intelligence, does it relate to your reactiveness on an emotional level? Emotional level, we talk a lot about like how you, if, if someone else has an, an emotion, you react to it versus being able to kind of just stabilize. And it's a bit like your patience. And when you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, if you have patience and then you're, you can respond in the appropriate manner rather than just kind of reacting to it emotionally. Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, one of my uh, recent grad students, Rachel Carmen, did a really great uh, thesis project that looked at um, stress reactivity. It looked at a bunch of different things, but it looked at stress reactivity and emotional intelligence. A huge, um, huge negative relationship between these. So people that are higher in emotional intelligence, they deal with a stressful situation. You can think of a stressful situation in a relationship they're much less likely to um, to bug out about it. Whereas people that are low in emotional intelligence or emotional processing abilities, partner gets stressed out, then they get stressed out. And then you got stress times, times stress. So I think that um, the way people deal with stress is clearly related to success in a relationship. Yeah, that's great to hear. Again, yeah, this, this is a bit more of a negative uh, scenario, but I, I like them. In, in some some areas, like I have seen this this kind of playoff sometimes, um, is that whereas one person in the relationship may have higher social intelligence, more emotional intelligence, if you like, just m more general uh, social intelligence and the other ones, they say the woman has lower social intelligence. The the other one is more dominant in the relationship, able to control it. And, and in a sense, the other one's a little bit naive about what's going on sometimes. Um, I guess from one perspective, one person can take advantage of that situation. 
like say the guy is more socially intelligent for instance uh and the other one being naive is, is kind of getting more manipulated in that situation i mean this is the kind of stuff that's going on every day sure i think that's a highly plausible scenario it's kind of not a very pretty scenario and I, I think one of the things in, in the mating domain, one of the things that people sort of try to do to address that proactively is finding a partner who's honest and, and loyal and, and kind. Because if that person has the potential to manipulate for his or her own purposes for children or other family members, you know, they're less likely to. It's kind of like, I think what I'm hearing you talk about is sort of intelligence as, as power that can be exploited and can be exploited in a relationship. And yeah, I, I think there is potential for that. And I think that's one of the reasons that we work so hard to try to find partners that are not exploitive. Mm -hmm. uh, that's great, Greg, because uh, we have seen, there's a bit of this in the news at the moment. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this guy called Julien Blanc from Real Social Dynamics. There's a lot in the news about him right now. He's a dating coach and he's kind of gone the dark route. Um, if, if you see his seminars and everything, he's promoting the use of whatever he's learned in terms of social dynamics, uh, in terms of manipulating women. Uh, it's gone pretty extreme and it's in the press and everything. So I bring that up because, you know, it's, it's kind of uh, forefront of mind at the moment in the dating industry because everyone's like, ouch, that's not very nice. Um, yeah, well, it's, it's, un it's unfortunate. I mean, you know, any, any set of knowledge can be exploited utilized for various kinds of purposes and i think that it's a, a like in a relationship it's a matter of trust to be able to trust your partner that that person's not going to exploit me even if he or she could and i kind of feel like we have the same in, in a professional um domain as well you have it the same in the professional domain well in, a, in other words in a professional domain we kind of let's say there's a group of people in a profession that have shared knowledge it's kind of an understanding of um we're going to trust each other to not ex exploit this in a way that has adverse outcomes for the industry or for people or for individuals. Right. You know, so you're kind of like talking about business economics and, you know, or like, well, just the, the society in general, it could be academia or, or whatever, using knowledge for good versus bad versus control, you know, because there's been monopolies in the past, et cetera, you know, things that we have laws against. Um, yeah. Where we don't have these laws in relationships, of course, um, to protect us. Right. Very good point. Okay, man. Well, thank you very much for today's talk. You know, I really like that, you know, you push back against some of the ideas I'm, I'm asking you about and, you know, say, yeah, you know, science is on top of this or not. And it's, it's, it's really clarified a great number of points. I just want to round off with a couple of questions we ask everyone, which is, um, who besides yourself would you recommend for great quality advice in this area of life, just better understanding dating, mating, sex and relationships? Yeah, there's a lot of great scholars in this area. Um, I've been fortunate to have pretty good relationships with a lot of these people. So just a quick group of people to think about. Um, Marianne Fisher, who's uh, at St. Mary's in Halifax, has done some great research on, on relationships from an evolutionary perspective. She'd be great. Justin Garcia of the Kin Kinsey Institute um, in Indiana, also someone who's done some really great, uh, great research on the nature of relationships, uh, I'd recommend as well. Another collaborator of mine, Dan Kruger, who's at the University of Michigan, has also done a lot of research on this on this topic, I think would have a lot of interesting stuff to say as well. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you for those. Um, it's always interesting to hear about. I mean, it's, I think there's so many people working in these topics these days. Whenever we ask this question, I'm amazed that like people I've never heard of keep coming up and up and up. So it's, it's great that there's so many uh, great people um, out there today. And uh, last, um, I ask this question of everyone, it's like, 
for a very long time now is uh, what would be your top three recommendations, you know, based on everything you've learned about this uh, that could help men get a better, you know, uh, relationship, dating, mating life? Sure. That's a great question. It's an intriguing question. Um, I think, uh, well, I think you got to have some level of confidence, um, some level of belief in yourself. And there's research showing that people who ask for a random date from someone are actually have some chance of getting it. Um, so, so I'd say realize that, uh, you know, there's lots of, lots of people out there and a certain level of confidence, um, is definitely going to be beneficial. So, you know, definitely have that. Um, don't, don't be afraid of, of rejection because the people who are rejected most in life are also the most successful people in life. These are people who've, who've tried. So I say that's another thing. And I, and I think that at the, at the end of the day, the thing that really is beneficial in terms of being attractive, getting a mate, having a successful relationship really is empathy and kindness in a relationship. And so I think fostering those things as opposed to trying to sort of manipulate and get what's best for you will ultimately be, be beneficial. So I think that kindness and empathy are things that should really be cultivated in any relationship strategy. Thank you so much for those. Some of those are like completing you. I really like the third one uh, too, which we don't think about enough. And uh, Glenn, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a really interesting and clarifying uh, interview today. So, you know, thanks for your time and being available today for us. You got it, man. Thanks so much, Angel. Take care. Take control of your dating life today. Take one idea or one insight from today's episode and apply it today. Don't wait. Do it today. That's all it takes to change your life, step-by-step, episode-by-episode. Learn more about what I, Angel Donovan, and my team do at DatingSkillsReview.com. How we help men like you take control of their dating lives.